Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Mike Volpe, the CEO of Lola.com. Hey, Mike. Hey, I'm psyched to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, pleasure to have you. And uh, let's cheers, cheers yeah. live. You're drinking a... Uh, this is the, a uh, Kona Longboard. Kona Longboard. Longer. Nice. Uh, I took a boat here. Yeah. So I said, fit. how could I not have a Hawaiian beer? That's, right? That's I mean, fitting. You know, yeah. Yeah. Because you're right here in East Boston and um, my office is over in the seaport and there's a great water taxi you can take over. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, this is the 27th episode of Boston Speaks Up. You are the first person to take the water taxi here, which makes me very happy. Um, well, happy that yeah. I did, but a little sad that 26 people missed that opportunity. I know. There was it was a, beautiful. It was there's, great. There's a couple coming from that part of town, too. Quite Anywhere. A few. Well, you can yeah. take it from um, the Intercontinental Hotel as well. Yeah. So if you were financial district, you should yeah. take it. I mean, there's a lot, it's a great way to get here. Yeah. There's a few a few people on the Lola.com team live in East Boston, and a lot of them take it, not every single day, but many yeah. days. That's how they commute to work. Yeah. You mentioned there's like, um, it's even like, probably like subsidized for like I East think Boston residents. This, they were saying there's yeah. some card they got that. Uh, cool. It's like five bucks. That's awesome. Of, you know, 12 Instead of like 15 or 12 or 15. Yeah. 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 I had a, um, a business partner in town who's originally from Lexington, Mass, uh, lives in Florida now. And he was in town visiting and he's really into crypto. And there was mm-hmm. a blockchain conference in the seaport. And we literally co worked one day here at the studio in Eastie. And we went back and forth the seaport like four times. Yeah. Uh, and I go and visit like friends like Keith Watson and the Fama PR guys. Nice. Just like, Take the water taxi over to a summer. Uh, they do their summer Wednesdays on the roof deck. Yeah, play some cornhole, pop back, get some more work done. It's it's a fantastic way to get around. Uh, yeah. I don't know, middle of winter, maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not sure, but uh, I mean, this is a nice kind of late summer, early fall day. It was beautiful. Yeah, Boston's a harbor city. I was actually looking at. Um, I just talked to Sam Thompson. He's a senior managing director of Progress Partners and Progress Ventures. Uh, most recent podcast that went out this week, and he tweeted uh, a picture of the city of Boston. He's like, people forget Boston's a like a bay city, and there's mm. it just surround like so much water. And I think that that's like a, I haven't done this yet, um, and I thought it'd be kind of cool like as a thing to do with my grandmother who who's who really wants to go. I think she's gone to the new casino once, but you can take um, yes. a free shuttle to the new casino. I don't know if it's free. I think they oh, okay. charge a few. It's like seven bucks or something. Oh, but really? Yeah, the new casino is great. My wife and I actually spent a, a night there, just a night away from the kids and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we drove in from the suburbs, but there's a great, um, it's like a nice yacht that they bought uh, that does that shuttle service, the water shuttle that they have. Cool. Yeah. I wonder if you, can if you get a card if you start gambling there like i thought i read something you're probably like, right you're, you're probably if you gamble i mean that's if you gamble work, there right? you have a card where it's like you can get on the shuttle whenever you want yeah it's like yeah, yeah. yeah i believe it yeah i i recently back in march bought a house in beverly and so sometimes i'll take the commuter rail into town and it goes right by the encore mm. it's only a matter of time before that dock gets connected and the right planning takes place yes. and the right pockets get creased there's going to be a, a stop right there's there. going to be a stop for folks from the north shore to just like go straight to the casino yeah I mean, personally like i wouldn't mind be able to hop on a train with my wife and do yeah. a casino night get a sure get a sitter for yeah. a daughter yeah, yeah. It's, it's real nice what they built there i mean it's uh yeah. it's it's beautiful inside did you go out did you like have a meal there yeah the yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a few restaurants there um mystique okay is, uh it's funny they call it it's mystique but uh-huh. it's on the mystic river yeah, yeah so it yeah. overlooks the river yeah uh which is really nice and i should i should the food there was wonderful nice. uh, it was a really nice meal nice. and then we had like brunch there as well it was sort of like uh you know just a, an evening and a morning for us 
uh, grandparents were in town. So yeah. we got a one night away from the kids and it was, it was fun. We had a good time. Cool. Is that your grandfather that grew up in a house without plumbing? No. Is that your so, other grandfather? Yes. You, you read the, you read the submissions <laughs> yeah. in advance. Uh, no. So that, that was on my wife's side. Um, but no, on my, uh, my, my dad's side, on my side of the family, my dad's father. So my grandfather, he was actually one of, uh, a few siblings and he was the youngest. So he was born here, they, but his dad emigrated from Italy. Cool. Um, and all of his, my grandfather's older siblings were all born in Italy and moved over. What part? He was the last one born, uh, the Hills North of Rome and sort of like the Abruzzi reason. Okay, region. cool. Northern Italy. Um, yeah, kind of Northern. Yeah. And, uh, which is why like I have blue eyes. And yeah. Like, so, so the Northern Italian. Uh, we must have much, some yeah. Northern Italian in my family, but the main two lines of, uh, my, my two grandparents that came from Italy are, they're from Sicily and Naples. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I have the blue eyes. So have the blue eyes. Yeah. It's Italian. interesting. Like yeah. people associate those real dark features with the Italians. Yeah. That's true of like Southern Italy and like yeah. Sicily typically, but yeah, a lot of, you know, the Northern Italians often blue eyes or whatever, yeah. kind of like, you know, up toward the Italian Alps and stuff. But, uh, um, so they all immigrated to, to they immigrated Boston? here to Boston, uh, Quincy. We yeah. did a lot of work like early on, like, you know, as, as a lot of early immigrants do like manual labor. So a lot of work in the Quincy quarries and like good Italians, they were, using their hands and granite and marble and making uh, tombstones and monuments and all that kind of work. Yeah. Um, and so, so anyways, you know, that was kind of like the family business that they got into and uh, yeah, no, the original, I mean, you know, I don't think it was that uncommon at that time, especially for new immigrants, but the original house, my grandfather as a kid was in, you know, didn't have plumbing, they mm -hmm. had an outhouse in the back and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, so cool. And you know, here we are. Yeah. So, so, um, so let's talk. So you're, you're a local, you're a local kid. You grew up in Canton. I did. Yeah. And did you have, you had some uh, siblings? I do. I have a, I'm the oldest. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, in the pre podcast interview that your dad went back to get his MBA when there was like a two year old and a baby. So, yeah. So I had, so it was, um, so I was the two year old. You were the two year old. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then my brother had was sort of like, I think born while he was getting his degree at night. So he was working full time. My mom was, you know, home with us. And then my dad, I remember it's funny. I was, I was, cause I went back and checked the dates and I, I was pretty young, but I, I remember, um, like having dinner with my dad, he had gotten home from work, have dinner with him. And then he would like pack a bag and like go off. Yeah. And it was like, where are you going? He's like, Oh, I got to go to school. And it was like, okay, like, you, know, you don't really have the context of it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, I think the question you were sort of asking is like, who are you inspired by or things like that? And, yeah. uh, you know, when I think about the, you know, the things that, uh, you know, my dad and my mom went through to sort of raise all of us and, uh, you know, and things like that, like I have an MBA, but I had the luxury of going full time. So I wasn't yeah. working a job. I was doing classes during the day and having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and what they had to go through was definitely harder than what I had to go through. Wow. So you were two. And so you just described, like you described that, like, is that, is that a memory? Is that one of your first memories? Like it must memory be, you know, it's interesting because it's interesting. It's, it's my so, daughter's so, two right now. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh wow. Is she, is, I have they very few me? memories before like five or six years old, Same. six or yeah. seven, six, even as a couple of memories from like around five, like kindergarten and stuff. And it's funny because you asked that question and it sort of made me think. And then I actually, I popped to my dad's LinkedIn profile. Cool. Like what year did he get his MBA? Cause yeah. I remember. How old I, was I? Right. Right. And I did, and I that did that. younger than six. I did that math and I was like three when he graduated. So yeah. 
and I yeah. have that. I have this one memory of him like heading off at night to like go to school, and, and so maybe it happened twenty times or wow. whatever. But I only remember it once, or and it's a little blurry. But I, I, um, I really like remember that context. It's very odd. But I, I don't have many memories from that time. And I actually, I assumed I was older yeah. when I checked the dates. I was like, no, I was like two or three. Wow, that means I really need to button up my parenting right now because well, <laughs> at any moment my 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 two year old could be starting to remember the the things that I'm doing or the thing or the. Uh, yeah, yeah the you say that. Although I, you know, I have a, I have my kids are now eight and six, and I you know I don't think they remember anything from two. Because you'll ask yeah. them, like, "Oh, we did this," and they'll look at you with like this yeah. blank face. They have no clue. Oh, here's a question for you: Do you for memories? I mean, we are fortunate to be a generation, a social media generation, and I tend to be like a private Facebook user, but I have like a private Facebook group where we. Sure. Share and post like pictures and videos of our daughter Mila. Yeah, and it's like for like close friends and family yes. to see, but also for us, like my wife and I yes. and Mila, eventually it's a nice archive of yes. content. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, curious if you similarly think like that, but then I do also, and I'm hot and cold with it. I was really good about it. When we drove back from LA to Boston last year, we drove cross country as a family. I, ke- I keep a journal. Oh, wow. Just because especially the cross country trip, there's like all the little things that you wouldn't necessarily like put in like, yeah. the, even like a private Facebook group update to people like, Hey, yeah. we were in New Orleans today. But like I was in New Orleans when the Celtics were on that playoff run and Kyrie, you know, Kyrie had long been out yeah. and it was like the, the overachieving Terry Rozier, Jason Tatum Celtics. And I was like, my our daughter was nine months and I'm like, hooting and hollering in a bar like right off of bourbon street with nine month old mila and yeah. like meeting like people and like chuck and this and i'm like i'm like oh and we met this dude chucky and i'm like writing these little things in the journal because i'm like i got it i want to sh- read be able to read this and then when i read it and i see my hand the handwritten note that i put down it's going to really channel that memory and i want to share with mila like you at, from a young age you've been around the country you've experienced yeah. different people different worldviews different cultures um so I don't know how how are you sort of approaching capturing content for you know yeah for I don't your know if we, I mean you know like everybody now we take a ton of photos and uh, Google Photos is a great little product to just make all that stuff like really searchable yeah uh, with just really AI that they have built into it um, and I don't know that yeah I don't know if we do an awesome job we do do on our holiday card every year we kind of write up like two paragraphs, kind of really high level summary of a couple of key things that happened that year. Yeah. And so we've got those, That's done, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting tip though, that the, the founder of Lola, Paul English, um, came up with recently and wishes he had done with his kids. You know, his kids are older now. Um, but to set up his hack is set up a, a Gmail account for like each of your kids. Mm-hmm. And then as random things like that story about you in New Orleans yeah. happen, just shoot a quick email, maybe yeah. throw a photo in there yeah. and just send it to the account. Yeah. And then when your kid turns, you know, yeah. 14, 16, 18, whatever, yeah. give them the password to the account and be like, have fun. Go, yeah. go read emails for four days yeah. about all the stuff that's happened in the history. It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's funny because like that. so much of that stuff, like growing up for me, you know, those photos. Yeah. But there might be a few photos from a year. Like it's not, you know, it's, it, yeah. The the level of detail. Far between. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're so frequent. Special occasions. Yeah. yeah. My wife was was good about that when uh, our daughter was born. Like she got the Mila Grace or video at Gmail set up. Yeah. We haven't actually. But it's like that's sending messages. Yeah, that's a very, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good tip, like a proactive approach to sending that. That would be yeah. so neat to share with her. All right, I'll probably do that. I don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. feel like it, but it's funny. He told me that about a month ago. And it was yeah. like a good idea. I was like, that's a good idea. I haven't done it yet. So. I love that. Just, yeah. So, um, 
I love how we're just riffing. I want to kind of, I mean, obviously a lot of, a lot of listeners are probably going to know you Mike from just your, your time as a prominent chief marketing officer in Boston, like from afar, I've been an admirer. And so, and it's, I'm grateful to sit down with you. Like in, in the years past, it's been well documented that many folks in the, in the know in Boston believe you to be, um, and have believed you to have been like, you know, the best CMO at an, at any given time in Boston's, um, in the Boston sort of tech ecosystem over the last decade. And, and, um, that's as per many other people. Um, and now you're a CEO, which you're seeing more and more these days. I saw the, um, the tweet from my friend, Jenny Marvin at marketing land about you speaking about the transition from CMO to CEO. I thought of my buddy, Ryan light. I don't know if you know, Ryan from coach up, mm-hmm. he was a CMO at coach up. He's the CEO of pistol Lake now, uh, commerce, but he actually rents my old apartment in Venice beach. Oh, wow. Uh, help help set that up, nice. taking care of taking care of your Boston brethren. Um, but I, so I'd love to kind of graduate forward eventually to your role at Lola.com. But you had a really um, interesting, you know, journey and rise as a prominent CMO, obviously as the third founder of HubSpot and the CMO of HubSpot. So kind of take, um, take us through uh, what, you know, you're getting your MBA at Sloan, mm-hmm. which Quick side story: My roommate uh, in college is Robert Cusimano, and he's the nephew oh. of Michael Cusimano, yeah, sure. yeah. which is the class that software helps. business class, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, I was. He a, wrote a great book about Microsoft as well. Yeah, like so, a long, detailed book about Microsoft. Yeah. So you had his. You took. I actually. So it's funny. I um, he was on sabbatical the year that I was on oh, the episode. I figure. missed the opportunity, but I've read his book. Okay. Uh, he's definitely a very sharp guy. Yeah. So I went to school across the river. I was yep. at, I was at Boston University with mm-hmm. with with Rob Cusimano, and during my undergrad at BU, we would go over to MIT and we would that's sit so in on Dr. Cusimano's oh, class. That's awesome. Which was just so cool. Like, yeah, I was that's great. to soak up as much knowledge as yeah. I could. Yeah. Um, so talk to Boston Speaks Up listeners, um, you know, many of which may be young entrepreneurs and may consider an MBA, like what, yeah. what you sought out, what you, what you gained, um, you know, the, the communication and sort of like the, the skills that you gained, um, the network you gained, the knowledge you gained with your MBA and then kind of, it's de- yeah, it's definitely valuable. And it was 100% the right thing for me to do at the time. But I want to be careful and I, I'm definitely not going to say that everyone should go get an MBA because the world has changed a lot. I mean, I started there in 2001. That's 18 years ago now. That's a, that's a long time. And uh, a lot of things have changed in the world. It's a lot easier to pick up individual skills. You can take these like all sorts of different micro classes online if there's things you want to learn. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different ways. And I think that the, the pace of what you learn through work experience has really exploded and increased. So to take two years out of the workforce to go get an MBA isn't it's the right choice for a bunch of people in a bunch of the right situations. But, but for, I think it's, it's less of the right choice for as many people now. Yeah. I think is what I would say. So yeah. I love the experience. I got a lot out of it. I got an amazing network um, of both my classmates and connections to alumni, the original crew from HubSpot. Uh, yeah. Not every one of the first eight or 10 employees went to MIT Sloan, but like, more than half did. Yeah. And so there were, there was like yep. some seeds there. So it's definitely been tremendously beneficial for me in my life. And I'm super fortunate to have had an opportunity to go there. Uh, but I, but I, you know, it's not, the MBA isn't right for everyone. There's a lot of practical skills that you can pick up 
uh, either through taking kind of like an individual class, you know, some places there's so many online classes now, um, or things like that. And you, and you give up a lot of, you know, time and money and, and lost work experience, uh, by taking that time to go do a program like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really valuable feedback for, you know, for those who are in a position to take the time and, and fully vet the advantages going. Well, and I think that if the time yeah. away is valuable to you, yeah. like you want to do a little soul searching, like you've done three years in finance or four years in finance yeah. and you're saying, I definitely do not want to work in finance. Mm-hmm. I think going to get an MBA can be a great opportunity to kind of career change. Yeah. But if you're like, I love finance, I want to stay in finance. I want to keep going in finance. You probably just want to then keep going in finance and maybe mm-hmm. pick up some of the skills and, yeah. and other things in another way. Yeah. There's a bunch of you know part-time programs you can go to. There's executive MBAs now. There's a lot more diversity of programs that are really designed to fit different types of people in different schedules now. Right on. I don't know if you remember Lauren Landry. She was one of the like OG Boston O writers um, back with like oh, Chase yes. Carverino and Greg Gomer yes, yes, and Kevin yes, McCarthy yes. and those guys like first had it on. So Lauren is now at Harvard Business School online. Okay. They've like rebranded their online school to HBS Online. Yeah. And she's kind of um, the chief like external communications role there. Oh, cool. And we had her on the podcast just kind of talking about that. Like that's sort of like in between like yes. what I more do, which is like like any free knowledge I can, yeah, yeah, I can yeah, gain. Like yeah, yeah. iTunes U, like I've taken the yes. uh, Y Combinator class at yeah. Stanford that's yeah. available on iTunes U for yeah. free. My buddy who's like head of original programming acquisition at Roku yeah. now, like he and I do this thing where like he'll hit me up and like, yo, found this thing on iTunes U, let's take it together. And we went to BU together, like first yep. class undergrad. So like we're used to doing stuff together. And then they, there's a lot of curriculum from universities, MITx, you name it, that you can actually get and yes. do for free and yes. hold yourself accountable with a friend. But in between that free yes. and full MBA, like and, and full time two yeah, years, there's inter- all these, yeah. there's this interesting white space in yeah. the middle, which I like what HBS online is doing, which is yeah. like, they're, they're like, it costs money. It's not as much money as a regular yeah. MBA, but they really are investing in like, because one of the big things that you get out of going physical is yeah. the time in collaboration you get with the classroom. Yeah. So there's certain times in the week where you have to be immersed. It's a platform, it's a technology platform, yeah. and it's and there's a communication element to it. So that you actually have like not just a relationship with the teacher, but your peers. Mm. Um, and it was really, it's really interesting. Like it kind of opened my mind up to like the sea of just expanding opportunity and like higher yeah. education, which, which is great, which again, comes from places like it's Boston. just more choice and more option. And you're, yeah. and you're right. And I think Boston's very much a leader in this sort of like education, both historical, like traditional education, and then a lot of the innovation in, in that market. And I, and I think you're right. I think it's, that's a great example of something that did not exist 20 years ago. It was either just, you know, keep working or, you know, go full time to an MBA. And now there's all these sort of uh, different programs that I think fit better with what people are looking to achieve. Yeah. Right on. So, 2001, you get your MBA at Sloan mm-hmm. at MIT. Talk about ha- what happened after you graduated with your MBA. Like, what was your first job there? And then, like, bring yeah. us up to speed with what eventually. So, I worked in San Francisco yeah. for a couple years, about four years before that. Okay. Um, so, after undergrad. And I definitely, you know, I'm a Bostonian through and through to the heart. Love this city. Um, really passionate about building the entrepreneurial community here, but also psyched to have had an opportunity to live in San Francisco and really experience that firsthand for a while. Yeah. So moved back here, go to MIT, and then um, randomly, actually at a, at a tailgate before a Patriots game, okay. I met the one of the co-founders of SolidWorks, mm. which is a mechanical engineering, mechanical CAD uh, company uh, that uh, has now been acquired by Dassault Systems, but 
headquartered here. They were in Concord. They actually have a huge building, Dassault Solid Works is now what it's called. And um, you can see it right on 128 in Waltham, yeah. sort of just uh, north of where the Westin is, like giant campus now. Anyway, so um, I don't I know, I know just so well because yeah. I was at Fama in the late 2000s when okay. that acquisition had happened, but Dassault oh, yeah. was, a, was a client of Fama PR at the time. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense yeah. then. Yeah. So, um, so I met the founder and uh, I invited him to come and talk to a group of students at MIT to tell us about tech and startups and whatever. Cool. And that led to him introducing me to the person who was running marketing at SolidWorks at the time, who liked me enough to hire me as a summer intern. And that then led to a full-time job. And then I spent almost four years there Great. doing a bunch of things around marketing and growth and um, actually even some like marketing operations stuff, a big CRM implementation they were doing at the time and all sorts of things. Just a really awesome experience. What were the and that tools was where, there? so it was, yeah. so it was interesting. So yeah. that was in, so they made a product. Early 2000s? This was like yeah. early. Yes. Yeah, so this is like Oh, Oh three. Yeah. They compared Siebel and salesforce.com. Yeah. And at the time they went with Siebel okay. because Salesforce had just been founded in 99. It was yeah. a really immature product at the time. If I remember right, SolidWorks was like north of hundred million in revenue, yeah. had you know a thousand resellers around the world. It was a pretty complex business, yeah. high volume, low transaction size, like $30,000 deals. And yeah. so they picked Siebel because it had some more advanced features. But the interesting thing was because Siebel was traditional enterprise software, it also meant that they had to pick a company to do all the hosting of it mm -hmm. and the implementation of it and the customization of it. And, you know, things would happen where it was like, Oh, well, we want to make these changes. It was like, okay, great. We'll code those changes. And the next time we do like a update to your version of Siebel, we'll, you know, you'll see that. And it's like, well, how, that's going to be next month. Right. And little things like uh, I remember like changing in a drop down. So list not, for the, agile. not agile, not agile. No, no. I mean, it was like, software, oh, yeah. yeah. And it was like yeah. a big, it was a multi-million dollar deal. Which, like all these yeah. things. It was like, again, the opposite. <laughs> it was like the very, very end of the enterprise software era before SaaS really kind of kicked in. Right. And, um, and so it's funny because I think looking back on that, it was probably, I understand why they made the decision at the time. Yeah. But I think obviously with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, had you picked Salesforce, you would have been missing a few features for three or four years, but the implementation would have gone faster. And those features would have come into existence probably at the time that your Siebel implementation was done right. because of all the partnering stuff and all the development that Salesforce.com <laughs> was doing. So it's really interesting there because I think that the lesson there is like for a technology choice for your company, it's partly about what the vendors can do today, yeah. but you're also betting on Very the company good. and the roadmap. So like what, how much investment do they have? How is the roadmap going? Are they one where the product is going to get a lot better, a lot faster? Or are they one where, you know, the product is really kind of stagnated? It's set. Yeah. It's set. How yeah, customizable it's, it's interesting. Is it? Yeah. I was looking at some of your, um, like you're, you're a pretty prominent local angel investor and, and you know, software is eating the world. So it makes sense you're investing in Boston. A lot of those companies are software companies. And I imagine that anecdote you can offer in that perspective from the early 2000s is like valuable when you're like on, on behalf of an, an investment you've made, maybe you're trying to do some BD and you're like, listen, not only are these guys like a solid choice right now, even though they're the new kids on the block, 
Their roadmap has them in six months uh, out developing where the puck's going. Not to mention they're small and agile, so they can customize this for you right now. Like you actually yeah. can like stand behind like a recommendation like that, having yeah. experienced it. So much then. of it is really, you know, investing is so much about the team and then even your choices and what platforms that you choose are like really about the team. I, I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you take it to even Lola.com, where our product was a year ago versus where it is today, there's a gigantic change in terms of all the new stuff that we've launched, all the little tiny things we've changed to make the user experience better. Just like so many things have gotten better in that product, you know, because we have Paul English, who's co-founder of Kayak, like running product and engineering for us, because we have a great product team, great engineering team, the product has gotten so much better. Uh, it's really a completely different product today. Um, and that's not true with every single company that you're potentially buying from. So yeah, it, it kind of, it, it, anyway, so I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, lot from that experience. Um, and then the, it's interesting because, so through that experience, I got to really understand how all of sales and marketing works because I was responsible on the business side for that whole implementation. So I had to really understand how the whole thing worked because it had to be then represented in, you know, in the CRM system. And then I had an opportunity to actually run a decent portion of the marketing team. Um, so not our partner program and not product marketing, but everything else from demand generation to PR communications, events, um, you know, content, all those things. Uh, and that was a great opportunity. It was kind of my biggest, not my first, but my biggest like management responsibility at that point, because the team was about, um, 12 and grew to, you know, 15 or 18 or so. There's your master's uh, class in management. I mean, and right. Time, I mean, right? more, more so than a real class. Like yeah. a lot of the stuff you have to learn yeah. by doing, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and what ended up happening is the last like year and a half or so, we started to do more innovative marketing and we couldn't find a good tool set to really support that. And okay. I'll give you an example. There's a woman and I'll tell you who she is in a minute. Cause this is a fascinating story who I hired as a, as an intern college intern. She was at McGill at the time. And this is like in, I don't know, 2003, 2004, something like that. And her, one of her projects this summer was go do some research into this new thing that I've just heard about called web logging. Tell me what web web logging is. Are any companies doing it? Should we do it at SolidWorks? And like, figure out this whole web logging thing. Like you're, you're a college kid and you know, you can kind of figure this stuff out. Um, and so she did an awesome job with this whole project and that ended up, you know, after she went back to school, we ended up starting launching some blogs because blogging came from web logging. Um, and we were one of the early companies to do blogging as part of like a corporate marketing effort. Sure. And there weren't any good platforms to do it for a company. So we had this big enterprise CMS, like all these enterprise IT systems. Yeah. And none of them were lightweight and fast enough to really enable marketing to do things like blogging and SEO and you know email optimization and testing, like all these things. And that's the stuff we started to get into. And that actually thread of, of our marketing team trying to do those things, not finding good tools in order to do it, led to a conversation between me and, and this guy, Mark Roberge, who was consulting with, with HubSpot at the time. And he said, oh, if you're into that stuff, you should meet these couple guys that are coming out of MIT and trying to start this company. Yeah. And that was what like led to it all. So it's kind of like yeah. interesting, just like how the world works and yeah. like little things you try to do and whatever. And so full circle, the woman who did that research project on web logging, which led to SolidWorks blogging, which then led to SolidWorks basically starting to do inbound marketing without calling it that. Her name is Ellie Merman. Oh, 
she was my first full-time hire. So she then graduated. Yeah. She didn't, SolidWorks didn't hire her, which is crazy. So I hired her as my first full-time hire in marketing at HubSpot. Oh, wow. She worked on our team for a long time, got promoted to like director, was managing a big team. Then she ran marketing at Toast and now she's running marketing at Crown. So crayon. It's a, a crayon, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, with Jonah Lopez and a bunch of other folks. Amazing. So she's now run marketing. What city? At, what city is she out of? So, so the best Boston? Boston, yeah. So, that's so crayon.co, the like competitive yeah. intelligence software, yeah, uh, which is awesome company. Yeah. Jonah Lopez, the founder, um, uh, he ran, ran services and helps a lot in the early days. Yeah, he's great. They've got a great team. They're doing really well. So they've raised money from Founder Collective and a bunch of other folks. So yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how that timing all worked out. So like a few years prior to that, there probably wasn't even a software like entrepreneurship class at MIT. Then all of a sudden, like people like yeah, Michael Cusimano were like, teaching yeah. it and you have like college graduates kind of getting it, but even like some of the innovative companies that have now become kind of like established, not quite getting enough to hire those innovative people out of school. And then like you meet those guys, you make your hire. And then, but so like what timeline wise, how long had, what's like, what, what year was that, that HubSpot kind of like was founded, but also like when you joined founded and it started, late, yeah. like late Oh six, I joined like the beginning of Oh seven. Yeah. Um, like I think I started in like early March. I think I met them originally like in January. Like right. Uh, and it was and then the whole company was, uh, you know, two co-founders, and then one developer, super sharp developer, and then two like half-time, part-time side project consulting folks. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it was it was it was pretty tiny. And you said in the um, in the pre-podcast Q and A that one of the things you loved about your time at HubSpot was how your role com- tri- like completely would change every nine months. It's funny because it's, yeah. yeah. So in one way you're sort of like, well, what'd you do there? And I'm like, well, I, I ran marketing for eight and a half years. Yeah. And you're like, wow, that sounds kind of boring. Right. But when the company is growing that fast, I mean, when we started, we were three people and I was in charge of marketing, which meant that, that, you know, the first thing I did the first day, I was like, there's no phone number on the website. And everyone's like, well, it's cause we don't want to answer the phone. I'm like, well, I, I'm in marketing. We don't have anybody in sales. I guess I'm going to answer the phone. I put my phone number on the website. Um, nice. And so it's like literally from that <laughs> to, you know, eight and a half years later, the company's over a thousand people. The marketing team is 120 people and global. Yeah. And we had, you know, a marketing team in, in Dublin. We had a team in Sydney. Um, and so the way you manage yourself or a five person team or a 15 or 30, you know, 70 person team, 100 person team, 120 person team, global team. Those are completely different jobs. Mm-hmm. Like the CMO job of managing a four or five person team could not be more different than managing a 100 person team or a 50 person team or a 120 person global team. Those are totally different jobs. And so one of the things that I loved about that role was that even though I was technically at the same company with basically the same title for eight and a half years, right. the job changed so much That's great. and I had to force myself to innovate and change and learn and adapt in order to make, stay good at that job. Um, and I think that's one thing that a lot of us in the early days on the management team at HubSpot forced ourselves to do generally pretty well. Like a lot of startups, 
churn through. There's like, you know, the management team that gets yep. you from zero to two, three million. And then from that to 15 or 20, and then there's the 20 to like hundred, and then there's a hundred to like whatever. And, and I think a lot of the people in that early team lasted through many of those phases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because we had that mindset of that sort of that growth mindset of how do I change and adapt myself and become the head of marketing, head of sales, head of services, not for a million dollar company, but for a five or $10 million company. And then not for a 10, but a 30, 40, $50 million company. And I think we, we did our best to kind of like grow and keep up with it. And, and I think one of the things that was really cool about that is, you know, even four five, six years in, we had a lot of the same faces around that table, uh, which I think meant for in general, a really cohesive team that really, trusted and respected each other. I mean, I know a lot of the folks from that, those early days that are no longer there now, I'm close, I'm very close with and do a lot of business with. Mm-hmm. So Mark Roberge has started, he's a professor at HBS. Now he ran sales. He started a VC fund. I'm an investor and sort of, uh, you know, involved with that VC fund pretty heavily. Uh, Yoav Shapira, who was the first VP of engineering and product. He now runs like a third of Instagram. It's uh-huh. crazy. So we moved out West. And, but he and I do all of our angel investing together. Oh, you mean Instagram from Facebook? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. that Instagram. Um, So we do all of our angel investing together. So we constantly talking about our investments and new investments and things like that. Uh, So that's been great. Uh, Jonah Lopin, you know, is running crayon. He and I are now both CEOs of startups. We do a lot of like, you know, therapy sessions between the two of us yeah. and trading tips and getting advice and things like that. And I invested in Cran. I'm an advisor to Cran. I've been a customer of Cran a number of times, uh, both at Lola and my prior company. Um, so we're pretty tight. Um, Sam Clements, who was the first head of product, VP of product at HubSpot, went on to co-found Inside Squared. Oh, wow. He's now a partner at Accomplice. I'm on a board of directors with him for one of his investments. So it's like, I think a lot of those folks like built some really tight relationships and great working relationships um, that have carried on for a decade plus, which is really cool to see. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't help myself but throw some shade at, uh, at, at, at Facebook for, for slapping their brand against Instagram to try to improve their shine recently. Oh, uh, yeah. No, the whole... I mean, I, yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I, yeah, no, it, there's a lot of, I, I think, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I love Instagram. I, there's a lot of things they're doing, but I, I think that, I think Facebook in some ways is, um, I think they have to look at themselves and figure out what they need to do to make themselves, you know, adaptable for the next, you know, 10 years and not just look at WhatsApp and Instagram and all these acquisitions that they've made and rely on those. I think they they need to work more on reinventing Facebook versus trying to like, you know, push themselves onto these other brands as much. Yeah. What a star-studded cast of folks that have gone through HubSpot. So I've in, in recent years, it's actually before I even moved out to LA or it might've been on one of the trips I was home. I, I connect, I, had stayed in touch with um joe turnoff oh yeah and had connected with him and he had like a really good blog post earlier this year it's one of my favorite blog posts of the year it's like for brands it's like are you a um dragon slayer or patron saint uh-huh. um, and he's just always putting about out just like provocative content yeah um, back in the day yeah. you guys were a good tandem like with him kind of heading up a lot of the, the content strategy uh, so fast forward eight and a half years and you leave HubSpot, um, and we don't really have to get into why, and and, and probably um, it's really not worthwhile. Um, but when you left HubSpot, what stood out to me 
was um, just how much people were sort of like publicly admiring your work at, at, at the company and you had a lot of options. And um, where did you, like at that moment in time, eight and a half years is a long time. I've been with Fabric Media for six years, which is the longest I've been anywhere. And that feels like an eternity. And you were somewhere two and a half years longer. Um, what did you do before just like jumping in to the next opportunity so that you could feel like, Wow, I was just in this role where every nine months I was completely like, re- like my role was completely changing. We were rapidly growing. You were constantly um, challenged and 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 energized. So I imagine you were like, "All right, I don't want to fuck this up. Let yeah. me figure out the next right move." So how? So what did you? Do? Any tips on what you did? And then talk about and then talk about the years that, that I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs there. and people that have worked at startups. And everyone said, take some time, take some time off. And people who had done that and taken six months off mostly said they wish they had taken more. Interesting. People that had said they had taken a year felt like they took maybe about the right amount of time. People I talked to that had taken a year and a half said it was maybe a little bit too too much. much. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, like, that means take some legitimate time yeah. off. Don't take a month off. No, yeah, no, because right, like some, really think about right. Yeah. And, and so I took a lot of that time to just um, meet with a lot of entrepreneurs. I did this fun thing where I did open office hours, and so there, were, you know, a lot of people in my network and stuff like that that I was meeting with. And out of but where? I also just in so I, I went to I would hang out in District Hall, okay, like twice a month for three hours. Yeah, I set up a Calendly where anyone yeah. in Boston Tech could send me a be like, I want to meet with you. Yeah, I was like, find a time slot. It. Yeah, I reserved half the time slot for women and minorities, so like underrepresented yeah. folks. And I was like, come meet with me. Like, there's an open invitation. Like, people complain yeah. you don't have access to people that have had success, whatever. I was like, yeah. come come let's hang out and it was a really cool and interesting experience so i did stuff like that i ramped up my angel investing a little bit um you know i I joined a couple boards so that was like uh 20 2015 to 2016 and took a lot of time and really just tried to figure things out and um and uh, talk to people about potentially starting a company talk to people about potentially like doing the investing thing full time and i think uh, like a few things became clear to me the first thing was i think originally I would have said like, wow, like let's get an investing. Let's like go the VC route. And once I started to really understand what that job was actually like day to day, I realized it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. It can be a really solitary job. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a ton of acquaintances and you're like networking a ton, but you don't have a, a team, like an operational role where you're working with the same team day in and day out and you're all relying upon each other for success is a really special thing and something that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't, you don't really get that with VC, right? Mm -hmm. Because your success comes through your companies. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different partners that are sometimes, you know, good relationships, bad relationships is all like, you know, there's some internal politics and and things like that. And so I just really, for me, realized that the operational stuff and the close working with teams, the building teams, getting my own gratification through seeing those teams grow and succeed wasn't something you actually got on the VC side. So I think uh, even though I spent a bunch of time sort of digging into all that, I think I very luckily and smartly learned that it wasn't really for me. That's interesting. Um, and that led me back into like, okay, well, if that's not the right thing for me to do, then it's got to be something more operational at a company. And then like, what does that mean? 
Huh. And uh, and that was what led me to basically one of the investors in Cyber Reason, the lead investor in Cyber Reason, uh, which is CRV and this great guy named Izar Armini from CRV, who had invested in Performable, which HubSpot had acquired. So he therefore became an investor in HubSpot. Um, and I had gotten to know, you know, through that whole relationship, um, reached out to me. He actually reached out to me much earlier than this. And, you know, I got back to him, but I got back to him and I'm like, I'm not ready for like an operational role. I think I'm exploring some other things kind of thing. Yeah. He reached back out and, uh, and, and he was smart because he knew I wasn't really hundred percent ready to take a job yet. And he just said, look, I got a company, they need some marketing help. You know, could you do like one or two days a week? And, you know, of course what happened was I spent a day or two a week, got to know the CEO, got to know the team. And I was like, this actually seems pretty cool, pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And it was very different than things I had done in the past. I think that was really appealing. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very big deals. So $300,000 to $3 million deals, mm -hmm. whereas HubSpot was like 3000 to $10,000. Yeah. So very different. Oh, yeah. Um, it was selling to big global enterprises. It was selling, um, it was a, a company that originally was founded in Israel. Half of the headcount was still in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv doing yeah. development and product. Uh, management team was here in the US. So it was really you know, three Israeli founders. Uh, so it was a really, really global company, you know, enterprise sales process, field enterprise sales team. So a bunch of things I hadn't done before. Um, and cybersecurity is a super big problem in the world and super interesting as well. Um, I mean, you see all these sort of like things and the Russians and the election and all this stuff. Like it, it's fascinating. Uh, and so all that was super appealing. And, um, uh, and so that was the job that I ended up taking L less because I was looking for a job at the time and more that I started doing some consulting with them and then just sort of fell in love with the team and the mission and the vision. That's cool. I had a, a really good friend who's since moved over to Fidelity who sim for similar reasons as cybersecurity being really important, took a job at Kaspersky Labs mm. and then had to leave Kaspersky Labs because like, there's too much heat right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of like, if you talk, <laughs> the Israelis 100% believe that Kaspersky is an arm of the Russian government, which may, right. or, may or may not be which true. I'm not, I'm not passing true. judgment on it, but yeah. like they caught some heat for that. And I think they got banned from selling to any U.S. government US, yeah, offices. Killed, that's kind of how, yeah. Yeah. My buddy was there in a pretty chief digital role when yeah. the North American business was basically shut off. Yeah. And so that was an interesting problem to navigate that he dealt with for a few months, but then got himself out of that. Yeah. 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 Uh, you said something interesting. I want to double click on you. And I, I agree with it. Um, it some commentary and a question and a follow-up question. VC, VC mm. really intrigues me more so for what it could be and not what it is. Mm. And like, I'm really intrigued by underscore VC right now yeah. in particular. I have a, yeah. um, recently reconnected with a friend who graduated a year after me at BU as we have all these like mutual connections, uh, Jenny Goodman who runs the core community uh -huh. there. Uh -huh. And, I'm fascinated by like in only five years, what underscore has done and kind of more of what they can do in the future. Uh, talked to my you know, friend of mine, Jason Burke, who's the chief strategy guy at Clift and does some angel investing in town. He's, he's, um, he's both like a, an active agent for underscore and he's part of their, like you first, um, program where he helps with, you know, advise first time entrepreneurs, but the underscore model being they have, um, core, they have investors, but they also have essentially, they almost act a bit as an agent, like, like as an agency and that they have a group of, um, consultants, essentially a consortium that they activate against their, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. their investments. 
against frameworks over time, mm-hmm. right? And they even earmark equity for some of those um, advisors so over time when as underscore makes an investment in a company and they're helping that company and they're cycling in the many entrepreneurs in Boston that are interested in giving back and helping advise the next crop of, of entrepreneurs in the city as those are being cycled through and they're trying to find, you know, the types of uh, thought leaders and, and, and networks and, and, and minds that can help them create economies of scale to grow their business. When they identify ones that are particularly advantageous to talk to, not just quarterly or biannually, but weekly, they'll actually have uh, equity set aside, they'll assign it to that advisor, and they'll create these like very, very strong frameworks so that those advisors essentially become ongoing, like regular contributors to the growth of the investments underscores making i'm sharing like a very very um specific and nuanced sort of approach that underscores making that is new to me from Mm -hmm. having studied Mm -hmm. now andreessen horowitz obviously is well documented for having like a pretty solid like active um agent model uh i'm just curious do you feel like there's in the you feel there's innovation to be had in the VC community, and if so, like I think there's yeah. some. I think there's some, and I've worked with yeah. Underscore. I was so I was an investor in Modic, which recently got acquired by Acquia, mm-hmm. and it was the same model. And I was somebody that Underscore tapped because Modic was open source marketing automation. Somebody that got tapped in that whole model you were talking about yeah. is like a part of Underscore's network to help. How did I do play out that models? model? To you good. No, it was good. It was okay. good. It was good. Yeah. You got you got a lot of the different pieces of it, and I think it's I think it's interesting and it's innovative and it's a good way to sort of help um, a couple things. One is if you're one of those sort of advisors that they tap, they often pull you in at the investment valuation stage. So in some ways, you can learn a little bit about how VCs look at investments through getting involved at that stage, right. which is kind of cool. Yeah. The, the underscore also gets the benefit of like an industry expert having looked at the investment and give some feedback on it. Uh, and then the entrepreneur gets to connect with an industry expert and can work with them and learn from them over time. So like yeah. David Hurley, who's the, the founder of Modic, I spent a lot of time with him in the first year to 18 months, you know, meeting regularly, talking about all sorts of things or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, you know, hopefully that was helpful to him. Um, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I think, I think it's an interesting opportunity for companies. And I think it's an interesting thing that underscore has done to try to differentiate what they're doing. Um, and you're right. Other people like Andreessen just has, you know, ridiculously big fund and ridiculously big fees and they just hire people and pay them cash in order to do things like that. Right. Um, but then there's other, you know, the other innovation that's happening too in that space is like angel lists and Mm -hmm. syndicates. So I have um, a good friend, Kyle York, who's uh, was one of the execs at Dyn, which got bought by Oracle, and he's now out of there. And he sort of started a small investment fund, uh, York.ie, and they'll cut a small check themselves with their own money, but then their syndicate from AngelList will follow in behind that. So you can invest sort of like behind them. Oh, cool. There's no management yeah. fee. There, there's like a small carry for them if the investment works out. And I think that's kind of like another interesting sort of yeah. like model. So like he hasn't yeah. raised a fund of other people's money, yeah. but when he invests other people's money comes in behind him on a per deal basis. Yeah. So it's like another like yeah. an angelist thing. I think it's interesting. What underscore is doing is interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of models out there. Yeah. I think the white space for me would be somewhere between like what underscore is doing and like a outsource um, fractional 
model where mm. like yeah, have, like agencies that are like leaning in in housing, but like in you know in housing right. is a big trend. But like there's plenty but like of, the stuff that a small company doesn't need a hundred percent. Like a CFO, CFO would yeah. be a great example. CFO, you need like fifteen percent yeah. of CFO, right? Right. Yeah. And so you could have one CFO that's serving you know five a, to ten companies, a portfolio of companies. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's people that do that. Yeah. But your point is to have that wrapped into, into the. the into it's the almost market. like a yeah. crossover of like. There was that phase where like the incubators were really hot. That's and yeah. it's not full incubator. I don't yeah. think you're I don't saying want to that. call it that. Well, yeah, baggage there, right? Yeah. But it's like somewhere in yeah. between. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I think someone like yourself over time, fast forward in the future, would be really interesting. You're you're the type of brand I would tap like such that I would have the privilege to be in a in a room with anyone I've mentioned or others that have yet to surface in my world where like we're ideating on that sort of um, a new sort of approach to the venture world, such that it involves more. You mentioned so back to this original why I went on this tangent. You mentioned you were seeking out like more operational depth, really. Yeah. Like, and, and, well, and I just so I just get yeah. a kick out of the operational stuff. Like that's where I feel yeah. like I I figured out that's where I get more personal satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah right on. So, so what, like that was 2015, 2016. We're now, yeah, like, where are we going? So that was 2016. We're getting close to the years. We're getting close. Yeah. yeah. So 20, what's the 20? So, so 2016 joined cyber reason, spent an amazing two years there. Um, company grew a lot. We raised a bunch of money. Uh, they're now, you know, since I left, they've raised some more, they're a unicorn, you know, billion dollar private valuation as of their last round. So mm-hmm. doing great. What was the last um, but round? Then the last round was actually recently announced. So, like, uh, I think the past couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're doing awesome. Well, what was um, the total on that round? I think I the oh, sorry, how much yeah. money? The yeah. last, I think the last round was two hundred. Okay. Um, SoftBank nice. uh, led that. Um, so yeah, so another two hundred, and uh, so they're they're doing great. Uh, there's obviously a lot to figure out. Startups are hard, um, and there's problems to be solved. But they're they're doing awesome and growing a ton, which is great. Um, but then it was about, I don't know, a year and a half ago when I had known Paul English, co-founder of Kayak for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And he reached out. I had knew, known that Lola.com had moved from, uh, originally it was a B2C consumer travel model. So mm-hmm. he you know started Kayak, built Kayak, took it public, got acquired by Priceline, uh, spent some time doing some incubator and some other stuff, and then started Lola. And it was originally a B2C consumer travel idea. I knew that they had shifted into being B2B, mm-hmm. but I kind of didn't really understand the implications of that. And sure. really didn't know the market that well. Had a ton of respect for Paul. I'd known him for a bunch of years. And he pinged me and said, hey, hey do you want to have breakfast? And um, and I was like, yeah, I'd like, love to catch up with you. We've had coffee before and chatted about angel investing. Yeah. And he brought me in as an advisor to one company he had invested in. We co-invested in a couple other companies. We sort of like, we weren't real close, but we knew each other. Sure. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. And I thought that he had like a CMO candidate that he wanted like a background check on yeah. or I don't know, some advice or something. Inside whatever. a new company. Yeah. So who knows, in, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know what he was up to or whatever. He's just like, yeah, interesting guy. I'd love to chat with him again. And within five minutes of breakfast, he's like pitching me on why I should join Lola. And I was like, oh, okay. It's a different breakfast than what I expected. Yeah. yeah. And what I got excited about And was, right out of the gates, was he saying as chief executive? Um, was it's really cool? interesting because we both did not talk about titles. Uh-huh. It was really about roles. And what he said, he said, I think I'm really good at product and engineering. I don't think I'm good at 
the more go to market and business side of okay. things, especially for a B2B company. Uh-huh. And he said, I think you're really good at those things. Why don't we like figure this out? And we talked about like all sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because, you know, and I think originally, I think he said, like, not sure, COO, chief commercial officer, or whatever. And then I remember it was like the afternoon after we had, like, the day after we had breakfast or something, he emailed me and he's, he's like, he's like, you know, I slept on it, like, you should be CEO. And I immediately emailed him back and I said, look, I was like, let's, let's not get crazy here. Maybe more co-CEOs or like whatever. I was like, yeah. honestly, like this isn't about the title. Sure. This is about the team and the opportunity and like all these things or whatever. Right. Um, and I got excited about it because it's a huge market. The existing solutions to that market aren't very good. The big dominant players, this company called Concur, that got bought by SAP. It's, it's old, it's clunky. It's a big kind of old school enterprise sort of Siebel-like solution mm-hmm. for enterprise. And there wasn't really any sort of meaningful challengers to them. Um, and Paul obviously has a great, you know, reputation and capability within product engineering. He had built a great team so far. And I just got really excited about doing all that. Um, and an opportunity to do more than marketing or I was even managing part of the sales organization, the BDR and inside sales part at Cyber Reason, but an opportunity just to kind of like grow and do more of that operational team building stuff that yeah. I really had started to get into and get a lot more kind of personal gratification from. Um, and so that's, that's what led to that, you know, a year and a few months ago. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And you mentioned in like, just in the past year, how much the products advanced. So like, well, and at a top and then, and let's maybe get into that a little bit, but at a top line, like, you know, share with me, share with the Boston speaks up community. Like what's the, what's that current elevator pitch for Lola.com in its B2B model and being like the Salesforce like disruptor. Yeah. To, to, to the, to the, you know, B2B travel. Yeah. Market. So we, we, I mean, short, we help companies save time and money on corporate travel. Mm-hmm. And so for the company, that means, um, we help them save money because we can access lower rates because we have a partnership with America express global business travel. They purchase over $40 billion of travel a year. So we have an exclusive commercial partnership with them where uh, we get access to a bunch of their special rates and make those available to the mid-sized business that we sell to. Okay. So that's one way that we help you save money. Uh, we help people save time because rather than having some corporate travel policy that's written up in a big manual and you need to like check that before you're searching on kayak or whatever, the whole corporate policy is built into the software. Okay. So when you go to book a trip, you know, you know what you can book and what you can't and what's allowed and what's not. It's all just seamless and it's just in there. Okay. Um, we also do 24 seven. So that, and the, those things. So really it's like for the company and like the finance department or the HR, the operations department, it's really about control and visibility and, and saving money mm-hmm. for the individual employees who travel. Everything's built into the system. So they know what they can buy and they can't. Um, it's a really fast, easy, simple user interface because the team that designed Kayak is now designing Lola. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have 24-7 support from our live agents. Mm. So if you're stuck because you're flying through Cincinnati and you're going to miss your connection or whatever, we're proactively seeing that, rebooking you, messaging you. If there's something that happens that for some reason we don't know about, you just hit us up on chat from within the app. We can solve any of the problems. The team is there 24-7. So a lot of times what's tough about business travel is something goes wrong. You go up to the airline you know, desk in the airport and the line is 50 people deep 
or you call on the phone and you're number 100 on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can do, because we have travel agent experts and we have direct access to all the backend systems, we can solve those problems in mm-hmm. real time with you like instantly. Um, and because you're paying us some money because your company is subscribing yeah. to the service, yeah. we can offer that and give you much better service than you're going to typically get. Mm-hmm. And for business travel, that matters a lot because you know if you're four, five, six, eight hours late for on a business yeah. trip, you probably missed the meeting that was the reason why you were going on that trip. And so yeah. it's like, why? What are you doing? Or you're trying to get home to your family. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a, you know another one of the great benefits for the individual travelers is that that real twenty four seven service. So it's control and visibility. It's saving time and money. Cool. Is there, is there any, are you guys sort of encroaching into like the expense like portion business and market? Too, it's, or it's, so it's a really good question yeah. right now. Uh, what we do with an expense is we have integrations with most of those players. Okay. So like Expensify would be a big yeah. one. We have a real deep integration with them. So at the end of your trip, like you come back, you land at Logan airport, mm-hmm. your receipt for your you know flight and your hotel, automatically get sent into Expensify, you do nothing. Yes. And then Expensify just says like, hey, these things right. are here. Do you want to hit a button and expense them? So yeah. things like that that we're doing, but you're right that that whole, the travel and expense thing kind of goes together. Yeah. And so we're definitely exploring new ways to like deepen those relationships. Mm-hmm. Expensify is one where we do a lot of business with them and it's been a great relationship so far. And, you know, we continue to like deepen that because those integrations are really valuable. Interesting. Do you foresee in the future Lola.com ever getting into a position where it's an acquirer of adjacent complementary companies in the space and you may want to We've already started yeah. looking. I mean, yeah. this is like, you know, I don't want to break news. Yeah. We've already looked at I could see a this. number of acquisitions. Yeah. Um, the thing about acquisitions, you can look yeah. at 50 and buy zero or buy oh, yeah. one. Like you have to, there's, there's, there's a lot of fit there between the technology and the people and the yeah. price and like all those things. Uh, but no, we, we, I have, we have a team that actively looks at acquisitions. Cool. Um, so we'll see. I, I yeah. think we're not, you know, we're not the biggest company in the world yet. So we can't go, you know, yeah. we can't uh, go buy any gigantic folks yeah. at this point, but we're definitely looking. And I think there's a lot of uh, interesting startups with some cool technology that we've already started talking to. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've established like, you know, the HubSpot pricing you had gone from the three to 10,000 range to the several hundred to seven figure million dollar annual software licensing. Yeah. How elastic is, I mean, you mentioned midsize. Um, yeah. Right. But, right yeah. now, most, a lot of our customers are sort of in that like two, $3,000 a year kind of segment. Okay. Um, and, but we have some up to 10 or 20,000. And is it based um, on the yeah. number of employees actively engaged basically requiring the software monthly? It's yeah. So it's, it's based it's on like the size, it's based on the size of the company. Um, but it's also, we have a few features, so some advanced features that you also pay more for. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a combination. There's like some more advanced stuff. Like we have, um, some stuff coming out where, um, you know, the ability to like manage multiple policies with different parts of a company or things that bigger, more sophisticated organizations want yeah. that you pay a little bit more for as well. Yeah. So it's a combination of those two things. Okay. How much fun are you having marketing Lola.com to other businesses? Like I try to, like, yeah, I try to not get into the business of our CMO. <laughs> I'm lucky that she worked, we worked together at HubSpot. She ran demand generation for me there. So she sort of knew what she was getting into working for a CEO who's done a lot of marketing before. Sure. Um, so that, that, but I do do my best to make sure that I'm not, you know, uh, a CMO that has, as a CEO hat on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to spend my time in other places, but I, um, 
But the short answer is I really enjoy it. Yeah. I love digging into the marketing stuff once in a while. Yeah. And, um, and it's a cool thing to talk about. I love that I can have a really deep conversation with people about corporate travel and expense and managing all that and little tips and tricks and things that I'm still learning a lot more about. But, but the, there's a lot of depth and a lot of tips and tricks for the travel industry. And uh, I've learned a lot in the past year and kind of already have kind of a couple things that I do better when I travel now and stuff like that. So cool. Where it, what's the definitive publication? Is it, is Skift up there? Like what's what, yeah what, in terms what's of like the travel reading? industry? Yeah. yeah, not like tips on how to travel better, but like the travel industry for like the, um, for yeah, business Skift, intelligence. I'd say it's really Skift Business Travel News, like BTN. Yeah, and um, the company Dime okay. is another one. Uh, company Dime sort of like more very newslettery. Yeah, um, but those three, I think, are the three that at least come to the top of my mind that are kind of like about. The travel industry itself. Although the interesting thing is, because we sell to mid-sized companies, none of our customers really read those things. It's just people with it. We read them to like you know see what's going on with the competition, the yeah. industry, and things like that in general. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually like it's it's curious to me that you like know those names. Oh I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm a media guy. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I, fair, I, fair. Yeah, I, I also, and from a media perspective, I think Skift has built a really interesting business. Oh, 100 percent. It's kind of we, pretty successful there. That's that's a good point. Yeah, Skift is a partner of of. Um, Fabric Media okay. and through iSpot, which is a real-time TV ad intelligence company that, okay. that we're invested yep. in and worked with for seven years. Uh, we produce like a top um, TV advertisers in travel yep. industry piece got it, got it, got every it, month. Got it, got it. Uh, but that's kind of part of our marketing yeah, model. Yeah, yeah. But I imagine you could add to that list of three um, uh, travel publications, Lola.com in the future. Like, cause I, the other, yeah, I mean, is, we're doing, like, you know, brand, we're, brands, we're, brands we're, yeah. publishers yeah. and you're, you, yeah. you and your yeah. marketing savvy and your, yeah. and your CMOs marketing savvy. Never heard of that before. Content. Don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, no, no. But yeah. I, I we're, can, we're starting to do some of that. Are you starting to it takes, I mean, it takes a while up. for that yeah. stuff to build up, but yeah, no, we're, we're, you know, the SEO is increasing. We're yeah. doing more of that. Yeah. Uh, we just brought on another content person. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so, Anything that um, I, I have like a, a a final question I like to ask, which which is you know what about the world you'd like to see solved, which which you answer sustainability, mm. um, and I want to get into that. But before we do, is there any any other tips, um, just general thoughts that you'd like to share with um, in you know the the entrepreneurs and and aspiring CMOs that are listening to the podcast that. You know, you you um, you mentioned you used to hold office hours, which resonates with what uh, you know. Clem Casalot and mm-hmm. Tech Stars, Lucy Maffei, now Boston Business Journal, numerous other people that have been on Boston Speaks Up have all commented on like having experienced many tech communities. Boston's um, entrepreneurs are just seem to be more more likely to pay it forward and donate time and and mentor the next generation, which clearly you've shown in, in the past. As current, you know what are what are good ways to, to get in touch with you, reach out to you. Uh, you know, yeah, LinkedIn, I mean, busy. LinkedIn and LinkedIn yeah. and Twitter are definitely like I spend a lot of time on both of those, uh, especially Twitter because it's nice and like short and sweet and kind yeah. of efficient, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's so on Twitter, I'm M Volpe, so pretty easy to find there. Easy to find on LinkedIn. So in terms of reaching me, those are probably like the best ways. Yeah. And I just um, I don't know. I tweeted something recently that was a piece of advice that was sort of like if you um, get advice from someone or meet someone once to get, you know, a little bit of mentoring or whatever, um, it will help both you and the mentor to do a little bit of follow-up, maybe not even a meeting, but just like an email or something three, six months later. Mm -hmm. And like, 
how did the advice help or not, or like yeah. what happened? Like just a little bit of follow-up. Sometimes it just kind of ends up being like it. a black hole. Yeah. And I think it's good, you know, who knows that could result in like a much deeper mentoring relationship over time, which sure. is good for both of you. Um, and I think just that level of follow-up I think can be really helpful. So yeah, yeah that's a good relationship yeah. management tip. Yeah. When I look at the most successful people in business, I look at people like Michael Casson, mm-hmm. who founded Media Link, or mm-hmm. someone like, you know, Sir, Mar- Sir Martin Searle uh, from WPP, now S4. And you know it's, they're managing a lot of lot of relationships, um, and obviously they're thoughtfully communicating with people over time. Even if that cadence is six to nine months later, or five years later. Hey, yeah. I recently, when I came back to Boston, I was like reminded of. I just felt closer to some of the mentors I had at my first job, and I was like reaching out to them, like, "Hey, like, thanks for teaching me about you know." what demand gen was when I was just like a PR media relations guy. Yeah, that yeah. really opened up, opened up my eyes. That, that meant a lot to me. Um, so last question, you have a couple, um, young children, six and eight, you said uh-huh. boy, girl, two boys, two boys. Um, the world that, you know, they're going to grow up in, uh, you mentioned sustainability as a big problem we need to solve. Like yeah. talk to me about that. And that's that broadly like yeah. climate yeah. change, like just, just everything like waste management, like all these things. I just, um, I, it's interesting. I, I, I'm a real, I sort of obsess about like efficiency and to some degree, like minimalism and like reusing things and things like that. And I just feel like there's such a big opportunity to change so much of that. Right. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm not sure what the right way to do it is, but like, I'm kind of a, like a super avid recycler, like in our yeah. town, they have those like big barrels that you get from the town that you put it out. And we have one, one small one for trash. And then you, you get issued like one for recycling, which is like a bigger one. Yeah. I had to go to the town to get like another recycling one. Uh, and they're typically like both full the trash one is like, kind of like, you know, not usually full. And so like, I'm really obsessive about like recycling and things like that. Yeah. And I just feel like there's, I don't know, there's, there's just like systemic things of, you know, so many places when you go and get a plastic cup, like, could there be a better way to do little things like that? Or, you know, and, and so much of the stuff that we think we're recycling actually doesn't get recycled. There's a whole like recycling thing where we used to all go to China and China won't take it anymore. Just like all those things. I just, I don't know. And and I'm not smart enough to actually solve any of them, but I'm super obsessive. And I've just been recently in the past couple of years, like, but just, thinking more and more about that stuff, you know, reading, watching documentaries, like those kinds of things. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I recently listened to the new swell CMO, mm. on the CMO podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You really dig it. And he was yeah. talking about why he was drawn. He's always drawn to brands with like purpose driven yeah. missions. Yeah. And he was t- like, one of the things he said that I took away from it that I thought was valuable. is like, you, you, if you obsess over like completely eradicating plastic from your life, like you're going to be pretty, like you might end up being pretty miserable because it's almost impossible. But it's yeah. like, but it's really easy to eliminate fifty percent, right? And if exactly. everyone yeah. eliminated fifty percent, yeah. and it's like, I was like, oh wow, my god, you're really good. Could at this you job. eliminate all the single use plastic? Yeah, yeah. Could you and eliminate it was a all single the use plastic and things discussion. like that? It's like, yeah, it's like there's stuff that I have that's actually pretty durable. It's made out of plastic, and that's actually probably not a bad thing, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of like, you just look at the the trash and things like that, yeah. and just like the packaging that we have, and how much of that's really necessary. And all yeah. Just, I think, yeah. I think that whole the whole area is a really interesting thing, and and yeah. part of it's about the kids, but part of it's you know, I hopefully have a decent amount of time left yeah. here to you know, yeah, and, no, absolutely. and just the planet and like yeah. society in general. Yeah. It's just, I just think there's a there's a lot of opportunity there, and a lot of opportunity to rethink some of the models that are being built and. 
Uh, and there's and there's companies that are starting to work on it, but I, I think it's an interesting area, and I think it's something that for the next twenty years would be a really interesting area. Yeah, if, if you're ever out in Los Angeles and need a place to work, Fabric uh, headquarters in Venice Beach is waiting for you. Just the the one thing it sounds like you won't have an issue with this. If you ever walk into Fabric's offices with a with a plastic bag. Our CEO Jason Damata, he'll like send you back to the store. Oh yeah, yeah. Usually, yeah. someone will come. Someone will come into the office around the store. They like have a bag. They're like, "Oh, I got some snacks for the office." Oh, so they, they haven't. Like, they haven't banned those because those are they'll banned have in some places in Venice. Oh, and they'll be wild. like, well, yeah. "He's like, what's this plastic? Get yeah. this plastic out of no, here." No, I try to like when I get lunch now. Um, it, a lot of times they just like automatically try to give you a bag. Yeah. And in Boston they banned the plastic ones. But yeah. even paper bag where I was like, no, no, like I don't need a bag. Yeah. I'm getting my one lunch. Like I don't need to put this in a bag. I can yeah. just carry the thing itself. Like we're good. Yeah. Sometimes even if you're at like a Chipotle kind of place or whatever, it's like, you know what, I actually don't even need the lid. Yeah. Just I just need the bottom part. Yeah. Like we're good. I don't need the plastic lid. This like, yeah. compostable bottom part. Like we're good. Like yeah. and all that stuff necessarily isn't perfect. Yeah. But little things like that that yeah. you really just don't need that you kind of just automatically take. Yeah. It's just kind of like part of the whole thing. It's like, yeah. do I do you really maybe yeah. I don't you know yeah, and trying to condition um, those yeah. new habits yeah little the, things like that the um and to your point about your uh, nor am i like we're not experts on climate change and and the types of things we can do to impact um and we're not experts on the optimal ways to eradicate plastic from our lives or whatnot that said there's people that are there's groups that are there's initiatives that have made their entire causes to uh eliminate climate change. And so it's interesting. One of the groups that um, Fabric Media just re-engaged with is Polar Bears International. I was kind of mentioning this to you before we went live. But, you know, that's the sort of thing where, like, we're trying to create, a, like, frameworks for them to go to Lola.com, to go to, you name it, brand, with, you know, with corporates, whether it's to get some budget from corporate social responsibility to invest in some of these causes or to simply help spread the message that's going to help impress upon people the things they can simply do to eliminate single-use plastic because that helps the climate which helps less polar bears dying which is a barometer for how quickly the planet's heating Mm -hmm. right and so you know we've been we've been experimenting with like ways to create um like a content marketing program for them where it's like there's like a polar bear international like stamp of approval where like if you're going out with your content in the world you have this stamp and people know like oh cool like if i work with lola.com or if i if i get food from craft uh they they're pbi approved they've like passed the uh requirements that they're like to, to to take a very mindful approach to how um, you know they address um, and, and make mindful considerations vis-a-vis climate change, and so I think you know over time it's it's kind of very interesting to see some of the sort of social impact initiatives and how those can kind of bleed into corporate America B two B software land that that we it seems like you and I tend to live in. Uh, so I'm very hopeful that not only like our generation seems to be pretty tuned into it. And I think hopefully our children even more so will be. Yeah. So yeah. optimistic that we can kind of cool things down, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Um, Mike, this has been a pleasure, man. Thanks no, for, thank thanks you. For awesome by. conversation. I love it. Yeah, I'm looking, yeah. Forward, looking forward to sharing this one with the community. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I think I had a lot of fun. Yeah, same yeah. here. All right, cheers, Boston. Boston.